Hey, everybody. Good evening. It's good to see you all. Uh, can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 1? And let's just um, start, get a running start of tonight's study by looking at verse 1. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things I write to you that your joy may be full. Now last week we said that John's first epistle isn't easy to outline, but I think he tries to help us a little bit. Because four times in this epistle John says, These things I write to you or have written to you, that you may not sin, chapter 2, verse 1, that you be not deceived, chapter 2, verse 26, that you may know you have eternal life, chapter 5, verse 13. And the first one comes only four verses into chapter 1. He said, These things I write to you, that your joy may be full. Paul the Apostle lists joy in Galatians 5.22 as one of the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are actually the attributes of God. The attributes of God, God's attributes are intrinsic to his nature, to his nature alone. That means that unbelievers, what the Bible calls the natural man, cannot duplicate the attributes of God from a fallen heart, which means the natural man can fake but not make the fruits of the Spirit. The only way for a person to experience the attributes of God in their life, which are again exclusive to his nature, is to have God's nature planted within them. And that only happens when they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. At that moment, the Holy Spirit moves in. And uh, as Peter said, at that instant, they become partakers of God's divine nature. Now, once God's nature is implanted or planted within a person through the new birth, uh, as they abide in him, well, the fruit of God's Spirit will grow naturally, if we can put it that way. It's kind of a natural, supernatural kind of thing. Uh, but as long as a person is born again and is abiding in Christ, then the fruit of the Spirit, which the Spirit is in them now, because the Spirit of God comes in the minute a person receives Christ, but um, as they abide in Christ, then the fruit of the Spirit, the attributes of God begin to now grow in and then through their lives as a byproduct of their relationship with Jesus this is essentially what John tells us in our passage. Again, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard. He's talking about Jesus. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And listen, the whole point he's making is that everything starts with our having fellowship with God. That starts when we give our heart to Christ. And then from there, all these wonderful things happen. We have fellowship with each other as the body of Christ. And some wonderful things begin to grow in our lives. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Now, last time we talked about uh, the word fellowship, which is the Greek word koinonia, a word that simply means to have in common, to have in common. When it's applied to our relationship with God as believers, it means to have communion or oneness with the Lord. John is telling us that our fellowship with God produces wonderful fruit in our lives. The first one he lists is fullness of joy. Here's something you may not realize. As believers in Christ, <laughs> we are commanded in the New Testament to be joyful. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? I command you to be joyful. But 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. The NLT translates it, always be joyful. And I checked my program, and the Greek is an imperative, which means a command. So God is commanding us to be joyful. Now, he said, well, how is this possible? All right. I mean, when we're going through deep personal problems, 
and our world seems to be kind of crumbling down around us, it seems, you know, unrealistic, even ludicrous to tell people, well, at that point in your life, God commands you to be joyful. First of all, I think we need to differentiate between happiness and joy. So a lot of Christians use those two words interchangeably, and they're not the same thing. Happiness is a state of mind brought about through our outward circumstances, whereas joy is a condition of the heart brought about through an eternal connection with the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Happiness comes and goes, guys. We know that, depending on our circumstances. And since our circumstances are constantly changing, we can often find ourselves experiencing intense happiness one minute and then deep sadness the next. Now, joy, on the other hand, is a constant. It's a constant because absolute truth never changes, which means God's promises never change. Joy comes from our relationship with God because it's the fruit of the Spirit. As human beings, we can have happiness because of our outward circumstances. But that's not biblical joy. Joy only comes from God because it's intrinsic to His nature. And the only way we can have joy, and all the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, lungs, all of those in Galatians 5, 22 and 3, is to have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And when the Holy Spirit moves in at the moment of conversion, then of course, as Peter says, uh, the Spirit of God brings the nature of God and fills us with God's divine nature. And that allows us to experience what only God can do in our lives, which is, you know, make us more like Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit then begins to grow. But it's all rooted in God's, our relationship with Him, but also in uh, His Word, His promises. God's promises never change. Promises such as, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a good one to hold on to when you're going through a difficult time. And you don't really feel God's presence. Be careful of your feelings. Satan can really use them to mess you up. But God's word promises you, even though you may not feel my presence, I'm with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But Lord, how could you be in this thing I'm going through? How could you even allow it? There's no good in this. Well, all things are working together for good to those that love the Lord, to those that are the called according to his purpose. That is a promise of God, right? These are things that we need to cling to. These are things that kind of generate, then allow the joy to come uh, to, our, to the surface in our lives. It's in our, our hearts. Look, as Christians, we believe in the promises in God's word. That's obvious. We believe that Jesus is always with us. We understand those things and believe those things theologically, but practically we often stumble. We feel like, does God really expect us to maintain joy in the midst of sorrow, suffering, and loss? I mean... When our world, again, seems like everything is crumbling down around us, how can we possibly have joy with so much pain and heartache that we are going through at that time? Well, you know, praise the Lord, we have an epistle in the New Testament that deals with that very issue. It's the epistle to the Philippians. I'm not going to teach Philippians tonight, but I will just introduce it because there are some great lessons there that are dovetailing with what John is presenting in his epistle. But the epistle to the Philippians is one of four epistles that Paul wrote, listen, while he was in prison in Rome. Paul spent two years in prison in Rome waiting to stand before Caesar to present his case. He was a political pawn. He had been railroaded. He was not guilty. But after they had kind of prolonged Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem, uh, eventually he had had enough being bounced around and uh, he knew that they wanted a bribe from him, the, uh, the governors there in uh, Judea. And so eventually, being a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal his case to Caesar, and that's what he did. And the governor had no uh, other choice. He had to send him to Caesar. And so they finally, he finally got there and was under house arrest until he could stand before Caesar. That took about two years uh, once you got in line. Uh, you had to wait about two years before Caesar could hear uh, your case. Paul's, you know, and, and, and this was what he was kind of under a house, a house arrest, so it wasn't as bad as some of the other epistles he wrote from the dungeon uh, in, in, in Rome, which he was there at the end of his life before he was executed. 
But this was bad enough. And uh, especially when you realize that he didn't really know if after he, when he stood before Caesar, if Caesar was going to pronounce him guilty and maybe even order his execution. So how do you like that hanging over your head, right? And yet this epistle, epistle to the Philippians, is known, uh, the theme of which I should say is joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. In fact, we could call Philippians the epistle of joy because Paul uses the word joy and rejoice over a dozen times in those four chapters. How was it that Paul could have so much joy while in such a terrible place with his very life on the line? Well, Paul's secret was he had learned, listen, to fill his mind with Jesus. Now, I know that, and I've had people tell me, I'm tired of Christian platitudes. I'm tired of you pastors just throwing out these platitudes. Look, there are platitudes and then there are principles. And I'm throwing out to you a spiritual, biblical principle. Sometimes the simplicity of it can be offensive to some people because they're looking for some deep, profound truth that they have never come across. What did Peter say in his epistle at one point? I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I'm putting you in remembrance of what you know very well because sometimes we forget what we should remember. The, the basics, the foundational principles, right? Paul had learned, and, and this wasn't just when he found himself in prison in Rome there. He had cultivated this his entire Christian life, but he learned to fill his mind with Jesus. We see this clearly in the first chapter of Philippians alone, where Paul uses Christ or Jesus Christ 17 times, listen, which figures out to more than one reference for every two verses. That's pretty extraordinary. And so even though Paul talks about joy quite a bit in this epistle, he talks about Jesus much more. And that was the reason he had so much joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. He had cultivated a heart that didn't focus on the problem, but it focused on the person of his Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. One author wrote, and I quote, How much Christians need to learn this. There is so much bickering in Christian circles, so much complaining, so much unhappiness. This was never meant to be. Christians were meant to be filled with love and joy and peace. In short, with all the virtues that are the result of the life of Christ within the Christian. To be filled with Christ is the secret of real Christian living. It is the secret of true happiness, end quote. If we want to rejoice always, we must live always near God. And James said in chapter 4 of his epistle in verse 8, If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And that simply means we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to do whatever we are commanded to do to draw close to God, which means to stay in fellowship with the saints, come to church, stay in the word, uh, be in communion with the Lord in prayer, that kind of thing. And so when we were born again, we were made partakers of God's divine nature. And as such, the joy of the Lord became available to us through our relationship with Jesus. But notice a warning that Jesus gives himself in John 15, almost in passing. Turn there, if you would, John 15, and stay there. Listen to what the Lord Jesus said in John 15, verse 11. Now, I'll just pull out verse 11 right now, and we'll go back. But he said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. I want you to notice what Jesus is saying here. He is saying that his joy, once planted in the heart of a believer at salvation, listen, won't automatically remain in their heart and that it can be driven out or stolen from us. Once God places joy into our hearts, as we have received Christ and God's nature is now in us and the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow, once we start feeling that joy, you, you have to be careful because Jesus tells us I'm telling you these things so that my joy may remain in you, implying it can be taken, it can be ripped off. How? 
Well, Paul tells us in Philippians that there are four things that will steal our joy if we let them. Here they are. Circumstances, people, selfishness, and worry. Now, you're going to have to go online and, get, and, and listen to the Philippians study because I'm not going to teach Philippians tonight. I will throw those out to you because those are what some have called the joy robbers. You might be thinking, you know what? I know a joy robber. I work with that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my mother-in-law, whatever. Uh, sorry, Mother's Day was Sunday. I don't want to pick on the mother-in-law. So. Um, so you can check out what Paul says about how these things can steal our joy, circumstances, people, selfishness, and worry. But what I want to do is look at the antidote to these joy stealers. And that's where it brings us back to John 15, which dovetails with 1 John 1. Jesus gave us the answer to that. What is the antidote to these joy stealers? Well, you're in John 15 still. Look at verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And again, guys, just to say it again, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul says one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is joy. Now Jesus is talking about that here. Verse 7, he said, if you abide in me, that's a Greek word that means to continue, to remain or in this context, to stay in communion with Christ. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Now, let me just stop there, okay? Because a lot of uh, Word of Faith folks will read a passage like this and um, imagine it's a carte blanche for whatever they want, okay? So, you know, and they're completely stepping over the word abide or not understanding what it means okay but they feel like well i abide i'm saved okay i go to church which means now i have the right to ask jesus whatever i want he's going to give it to me but of course the idea of abiding is um, remaining close to him in communion with him if you are walking in close fellowship with jesus christ his heart will be your heart and the things he desires, you will desire. The one who said, I always do what pleases my Father. I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? You want to be one of my disciples, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So obviously, when the Lord talks about prayer in his name, or uh, that comes from abiding in him, it's prayer that is consistent with his heart. And his heart is not that you have a lot of money per se. It's not that you have the nicest house in town or your business starts skyrocketing and makes you a whole boatload of money. Any one of those things is not what that's all about. When we truly are abiding in him, his heart is our heart. And our heart will then be to please the Father, to do the things that build the kingdom, to deny ourselves to put Jesus first and the glory of God before our own uh, desires and so on. Just throw it out there, okay? Um, but if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be, or in other words, you will prove yourselves to be my disciples. You'll know them by their fruit. Jesus said, you'll know them, you'll know if a person belongs to me by the fruit. Because again, we're talking about fruit of the Spirit. And that can't grow in the life of an unbeliever. So if a person is bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then we know that they are a believer in Christ. This will prove, not make you my disciple. I mean, fruit doesn't earn us our salvation. It just proves that we are connected to Christ. And so you will... Prove yourselves to be my disciple. Look at verse 11 again. These things I have spoken to you, listen again, that 
my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Did you notice that Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. And if joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, then we could paraphrase it without doing any damage at all to the text. You will bear much fruit, or in other words, you will have much joy, and that your joy will remain. Your joy will remain. Look, abiding in the Word, and that's Jesus too. He's the Word, and you have His Word in your lap. Abiding in the Word of God, filling your mind with the Word, and allowing it to transform your thinking about, here we go, circumstances, people, self, and worry. The joy stealers. That's the key to Jesus' joy remaining in us and overflowing our lives. And guys, that in a nutshell was the secret to Paul's ability to have joy while in prison with the possibility of execution hanging over his head. He learned to fill his mind with Jesus. Now, get a grasp on this, okay? And I'm not talking about some metaphysical baloney, okay? Paul... The secret, and it wasn't really a secret, he shared it every epistle he wrote practically, all right? But if we just put it that way. The secret to Paul's ability to have joy in the midst of some of the most difficult circumstances we can imagine. And one of them comes to mind when they were in Philippi, and that probably precipitated some of his comments on joy in difficult circumstances. Remember how at one point him and Silas were arrested? They were beaten and thrown into the inner prison in the stocks. And you have to understand these dungeons in the ancient world, oh my goodness. They were rat-infested, lice and bug-infested places. Dirt floors saturated with urine and feces and you were thrown there. And that's where you, you know, and remember it says that around midnight, Paul and Silas were singing praises to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Hey, anybody can sing songs to God when things are going well. That doesn't impact any unbeliever. What impacts an unbeliever is when we have the joy of the Lord and it comes through in the most difficult circumstances. And here we are, filled with the Spirit, loving the Lord, praising His name. And people are looking and going, are you crazy? No, I'm not crazy. I just have Jesus. He's in charge, you know. And what happened after they were singing for a little bit and the prisoners were listening? What happened next? An earthquake came. And all the doors flew open and all the chains fell off? You want the prison doors to fly open in your life, whatever we're talking about, and the chains that Satan may have you bound with still to fall off? You, you just praise God. Praise is a manifestation of faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. Faith is the umbilical cord that connects us to God and allows His power to flow from Him into our lives. It's all about faith which comes as we just stay close to him, right? But Paul learned to have victory. He learned to have peace. He learned to have joy in the most awful situations because he learned to fill his mind with Jesus. In fact, Paul uses the word, and I'm still talking about Philippians now, Paul uses the word mind ten times in that epistle, thinking five times, and remember 16 times in this epistle on joy. It's because the secret to the to a Christian joy, guys, is found in your mind. Oh, hey, you just said that happiness was circumstance of the mind. Joy is of the heart. Yes, joy is of the heart. But it's access through our mind. How we think about our trials. How we think about, about life and uh, how we approach life and what our uh, uh, view, worldview is, and our purpose for why we're here. All of that is found in the way we think. Yeah, joy is planted in the heart at the new birth. But for a lot of Christians, it never surfaces. It's there because God's there. But it's never accessed. Why? Because they're not setting their minds on things above. They are setting their minds on things of this earth, the problems and all the, and it's choking out 
the joy. In fact, the word worry comes from an old German word that means to strangle. Worry will strangle your faith and destroy your joy. It's there, but you, it will, it's like taking a garden hose and just crimping it, and it's, the flow stops. Got the flow of God in your heart, where it comes through your life in the form of fruit, which is peace and all the other things. Guys, we have to understand we access that joy by the way we think about things. Starting with why I'm here and this. What, what is my purpose for being a Christian? Is it for God just to bless me? Keep pouring stuff onto me? Or is it for me to glorify him with the way I live? And if that's the case, that's why Paul could rejoice in the prison there in Rome because he had a ministry to the other prisoners and the guards and Caesar's whole household of servants he could have never had if he wasn't a prisoner in Rome. This is how he looked at things. This is why he was victorious. This is why he had so much joy. He didn't look at every situation that was terrible and say, oh God, this is what I get for serving you. Doesn't pay. And you know, there's some Christians getting nuts, you know. Paul was like, oh, praise God. I'm a prisoner in Caesar's palace. There's no way I could ever have ministered to these people if God hadn't thrown me in here. This is a ministry opportunity. Remember, he, I think it was the Philippians, he writes and says, you know, hey, Caesar's, you know, so many of the servants are saved. Here we are, the soldiers, we're all praising God. You know, it's a wonderful thing. But see, you have to have the, a heart that says, God, I want my life to glorify you. And if that means I have to be thrown into some pretty awful situations at times, give me grace to see it for what it is, a ministry opportunity, because then I can have joy. Then I can have joy, and so on, okay? But again, the way we think, again, I, Colossians 3, 2, once again, Paul says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. In other words, cultivate an eternal perspective of life, a heavenly perspective. Remember Ephesians uh, 2? Paul said that we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places, right? Cultivate a heavenly perspective of this life. Now, whenever you say something like this, there's always somebody that's going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of people that are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Is that what you're saying, Pastor? First of all, let me just go on record and say, I don't know who coined that expression. But they weren't hearing from the Holy Spirit. That sounds like something, sounds like something Satan would say to, you know, let me, can I turn it around and say it how I believe it should be said? Look, it, you're only going to be earthly good in proportion to how heavenly-minded you are. You can't be heavenly-minded and not have a heart for people on this earth or to serve God. Because heaven's the goal. Heaven's what you're working towards. But in the meantime, you want to see as many people get to heaven with you. I don't see how you can be any earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. Anyway, that's me. And, and please understand as we move on. I'm not talking about PMA, positive mental attitude. I'm talking about BMA, biblical mental attitude. <laughs> or what Paul calls having the mind of Christ, right? Philippians 2.5, 1 Corinthians 2.16. And so when we read in 1 John 1, 4 that John is writing his epistle in part, in part, so that our, our joy may be full, hopefully now you maybe have a little better handle on what that's all about. Verse 5, this is the message. And the first four verses were kind of introductory. Now he's launching into the heart of what he wants to say in this first part. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. As we have pointed out, guys, many times, in the scriptures, light and darkness are used often as metaphors. Light is often used in the scriptures to represent spiritual truth, holiness, and moral purity. Darkness is often used in the scriptures to represent spiritual error, evil, and moral impurity. When John says that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, he means that God, listen, is absolutely holy 
absolutely righteous and absolutely pure. And that in him, there is the complete absence of evil of any kind. This also means that he cannot look with favor upon any form of sin or evil, nor can he have fellowship with those who are living in sin or promoting evil of any kind. You can read Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, how that sin, transgression, will separate us from God, and how that one of the prophets said that God cannot bear to look upon sin. All that means is that he can't look upon it favorably. Of course, he sees it. He sees everything. He can't look upon it favorably. So anyone who is involved in sin and says, well, God is okay with it because this or that, you know what? You are not being faithful to what Scripture says. I was reading a book years ago by a pastor, and he said at one point, uh, one of his deacons ran off with a married woman, and I think he was married too, so they, they both left their spouses and, and, uh, and ran off with each other. This guy was a leader in the church. And when he did, he took 50000 from the church. He ripped the church off for 50000 and left a letter to the pastor saying, God understands why we have to do this. In other words, God's for us. Now, that's how deceived some people get. They get so wrapped in their sin, and they're trying so hard to justify because they don't want to deal with the guilt. They don't want to feel like they really are doing something wrong. We all want to cast ourselves uh, in a light that says, well, uh, I, I'm really serving God. This was really, God laid this on my heart. He, he knows that we have to do it this way. That's how deceit, it's like Saul, right? Saul, God gave him instructions, a, a command to do certain things. He didn't do those things, but he came back from the battle praising God as if he had fulfilled everything God had said. And Samuel, of course, was dispatched by God to rebuke this guy. At one point, Samuel said, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken better than the fat of rams, right? Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. We, we must never say that God is okay with my sin. Or God is approves of my sin. That's self-deception at its worst. So God is absolutely pure. Absolutely righteous. And he cannot look upon sin. He cannot have fellowship with those who are in sin. And uh, so on. Verse 6. John said, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, I love John, and, and I've said this before. Uh, I love John for a lot of reasons. I love James, too. I love them all, but these guys are straight shooters, aren't they? You know, they did not read, and I know I've said it before, they did not read how to win friends and influence people. It seems they were operating out of the book that says kick them in the pants when they need it, love them, you know, if they're, you know but give it to them straight. Now, even in John's day, obviously, there were a lot of people going to church that thought they knew the Lord. They, they really believed they were saved. And yet they were so justifying sin that John feels the need to call them out. And says, basically, I'll paraphrase, don't tell me that you are right with God, that you have fellowship with him when you are walking in darkness, sin, immorality, uh, evil. You lie. You are not practicing the truth. One pastor said, and I quote, he says, Scripture reveals two fundamental principles that flow from the foundational truth that God is light. First, light represents the truth of God as embodied in his word. The psalmist wrote these familiar words, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The unfolding of your words gives light and gives understanding to the simple. The light and life of God are inherently connected to and characterized by truth. So light represents truth, God's truth. Second, Scripture also links light with virtue and moral conduct. The Apostle Paul instructed the Ephesians, he said, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. 
He goes on, those two essential properties of divine light and life are crucial in distinguishing genuine faith from a counterfeit claim by some who say, I believe. Great, so is the devil, but you know. If one professes to possess the light and to dwell in it, to have received eternal life, he will show evidence of spiritual life by his devotion both to truth and to righteousness, end quote. Devotion to truth and purity, holiness. Again, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not listen. Practice the truth. John tells us here, that if we practice, that's the key word, the truth of God, it's one of the evidences that proves we are children of God. Even as he goes on to say that those who practice sin prove they are children of the devil. Turn to chapter 3, which we'll look at in detail when we get there, but let's just throw it out because this is where John's going. 1 John 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins, or in other words, practices sins, is of the devil. Verse 10, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And I'll end there. Now look, John understands that even the godliest Christians are going to sin once in a while. But simply, listen, but simply committing a sin here and there isn't what John has in mind, although I'm not condoning that by any means. What John is zeroing in on is those who say they're Christians, or maybe they don't even say, who are practicing sin, practicing sin. You know, it's one thing to fall into sin here and there. It's another thing to practice it and tell people that you're right with God. I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep picking on Mayor Buttigieg, who's running for president. He's an openly gay man married to a man. He's an Episcopalian, I believe, who thinks that he is a Christian and is right with God. Anybody who calls what he is doing sin, he... Um, He's not a violent guy, but he'll attack. He'll go after them because he feels like, who are you to tell me that my creator made a mistake? He made me this way. I've heard him say that. But John is telling us that, look, you can commit sin. We, you know, He's going to go on to say in a moment, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. None of us are perfect this side of glory, okay? But we cannot say we know him and walk openly in sin. We're deceiving ourselves, is John's point, okay? Verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. When John talks about those who walk in darkness, verse 6, he isn't talking about individual sins or an occasional lapse, but a lifestyle or a pattern of living. That's implied in the word walk. It's an ongoing thing. Again, he isn't talking about an individual sin or, you know, a lapse in judgment where you do something that God has said you can't do. He's talking about those, this is the pattern of their life. It's their lifestyle. They're walking in it. The same is true when he talks about those who walk in the light. Verse 7. This is not referring to somebody who goes to church once in a while. But a pattern of living that puts Jesus Christ first and keeps the commandments of God on a daily basis. That's the contrast he's drawing on. Now I want to read you verse 7 out of the Amplified. Okay, But if we really are living and walking in the light as he himself is in the light, we have true unbroken fellowship with one another. Listen. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses or removes us from all sin and guilt 
In other words, it says, keeps us cleansed from sin in all its forms and manifestations. It's a lot there, but they're trying to cap capture all the nuances of the Greek words that are being used. If we walk in the light, and the idea there, when you walk in the light, the light represents in this context the word of God, God's truth. Walking in it implies that you live it, you're living it on a daily basis, not just giving it lip service, but you are with all your heart wanting to do what God has said. We don't always do it, we blow it. But the general pattern of our lives as Christians is we want to live righteously. We want to read God's word and then do what God has told us. And if you're doing that, John says, you have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, and the Greek is continually cleanses us from all sin. Listen, I believe that John is talking about positional cleansing here in verse 7. And in verses 8 and 9, he has practical cleansing in mind. Remember last week, guys, we said that our fellowship with God is both positional and practical. A lot of people don't realize this, that the Bible presents positional truths and then practical truths. And the problem is they take positional truths and apply them in practical ways. And that's where you get uh, Christian perfectionism. Because the Bible says in Christ, when I'm saved, I am made perfect, positionally speaking. So they try to apply that practically and say, well, Christians never sin. Now you've maybe heard, I'm not sure it's so popular nowadays, but it was in the old days. Or they take practical truths and try to apply them positionally and now they got Christians losing their salvation and all, everything else. We talked about, because we talked about fellowship last time, and John was, talking, John was talking about it, we said that our fellowship with God is both positional and practical fellowship. We enter into positional fellowship, oneness, with him at the moment of salvation. That fellowship can never be broken because it's eternal and unconditional. However, practical fellowship with the Lord can be broken through sin and can only be restored through confession and repentance. Verse 9 tells us that. We'll look at it next time. Well, here, guys, John is, is, is he's continuing that idea, that thought. We started it last week, and now he continues with it, basically. And uh, John is talking about positional fellowship, verse 7, with God, based on positional cleansing from sin. Again, verse 7. Then he follows it by mentioning practical fellowship with God based on practical cleansing from sin in verses 8 and 9. Look, since John's gospel and first epistle are so closely connected, it wouldn't surprise me if John's comments in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 1, where he is talking about positional and practical aspects of our fellowship with the Lord and our walk with him, it wouldn't surprise me at all, in fact, I lean toward it, uh, that it comes right from what Jesus said about these things in the upper room the night before he went to the cross in John 13. Why don't you turn there? Again, just remember, there are positional truths, practical truths. I have positional fellowship with Christ at the moment of salvation. I'm in Christ. And as God sees me at that moment for the rest of my existence, he sees me perfect, blameless, sinless, holy, because I'm in Christ. That's positional truth. Practically, no, I'm not really all those things. I'm not holy and perfect and blameless and so on. I still sin. And so therefore, I need to confess my sins. And then he will forgive me my sins. But Jesus said some very interesting and important things the night before he went to the cross. Of course, everything he says is important, obviously. But um, remember, he was talking about them being servants. You may not know this from the text, but they had a running argument throughout his entire ministry who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You see it surface in different places in the Gospels. Well, many commentators believe they were having that very argument in the upper room the night before the cross. So sometimes, you know what, you've said all you can say, now you just have to demonstrate. So Jesus doesn't even say a word. He gets up from the table, girds his waist with a towel, pours water in a basin, and begins to wash the apostles' feet. 
I'll just pick it up in verse 5. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel uh, with which he had girded himself. Verse 6, Then he came to Simon Peter, and Simon said to him, Lord, you are washing my feet? Oh, wait. Verse 8, Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. Because that was the lowliest task of a servant. We, we, we would miss that because that's not a cultural thing for us. But in those days, washing somebody's feet was the most degrading, the lowliest task given to the lowliest servant. And here's the Lord of glory, the king of the universe, trying to teach these men who were so into their own glory, who's going to be the greatest, had they learned nothing in three and a half years of watching Jesus put himself last and everybody first? Well, he begins to wash their feet. And I would imagine you saw 12 guys look about as red as tomatoes. Peter was incensed for the Lord. You're never going to wash my feet. You are not the lowliest servant here. Lord, I will not allow you to take that role in my, to me. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash you, your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, let me paraphrase, I'll take a bath. I love Peter. You know, he, he meant well, but, you know. Jesus said to him, I'll, I'll take a bath, Lord. He washed my hands, my, my head, everything. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There are some things that come through in the Greek that are absolutely monumental. The word translated wash in verses 5, 6, 8, 12, and 14 is nipto. Nipto. And means to wash a part of the body. But the word translated bathed in verse 10 is luo, and it means to bathe all over or to be completely cleansed from head to foot. Guys, in that culture, when a person took a bath, usually it was in the morning, they cleansed themselves completely. They called it luo. But then as they walked along dirt paths with open sandals all day long, their feet would become dirty and would need to be washed as they entered someone's home to eat and fellowship with them. That's why it was customary to have a servant by the door who would wash visitors' feet. Don't forget now, they didn't sit at a table like we do to eat. They reclined around uh, on one side around a table that often just sat on the floor, which meant if you had a good-sized crowd there, uh, your feet were often not far from somebody else's head. I think about that, right? Uh, so it was customary, if you were too poor to have a servant to wash somebody's feet, that you as the host would wash their feet. That's a pretty humble thing. Jesus was the host of this Passover meal. These guys were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Do you think that after three and a half years, one of them would say, Lord, I'll wash the feet? Nobody did, so Jesus began to wash feet. But when they would go to somebody's house and the servant would wash their feet, it was nipto. Just a partial washing of the feet. They had taken a bath, they were completely clean, but the feet had gotten dirty as they walked on those dusty roads with open sandals. When a sinner trusts the Savior, guys, he is bathed all over or made completely clean through the blood of Christ. And his sins or her sins are washed away and forgiven. Hebrews 10, 17, And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. 
they are luau. They are washed completely of their sins. However, as the believer walks in this filthy world, it's easy to become dirty or defiled, isn't it? And when that happens, he or she doesn't need to be bathed all over again. In other words, they don't have to be saved again, right? The blood of Christ has washed them clean of their sins. Luo. They don't need to be washed all over again or, or saved again. They simply need to have their feet, quote unquote, washed. You know, to the Jewish people, the feet were the dirtiest part of the body. Why? Because they were the part of the body that came in contact with the world. And of course, the world is a defiling place. And so they would see this spiritually as the feet touching the world defiled their walk. And that's why they had the mikvahs whenever they went to temple, which were the cleansing baths that they would walk into and bathe. Ceremonially, they were, it was saying, I'm washing myself from the filth of the world before I come into the presence of God. And that's why Jesus uses the feet as an illustration of practical cleansing, spiritually speaking, because they, re they represent our walk with him. And that's why it's so important that we keep our walk clean. Because if we are defiled by the world, we can't walk with the Lord and have communion with him as he desires. So in that regard, we must constantly listen, confess our sins, repent and wash daily in the water of the word, Ephesians 5, verse 26, right? Which if we will do, God promises he will honor our confession and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We'll see this more next week when we see verse 9. Guys, when God bathes us all over in salvation, that brings about our union with Christ. And that is a settled relationship that cannot change. Listen to me. When you give your heart to Christ, when you gave it to Christ, the blood of Christ washed you, luo, completely of all your sins. And at that instant, you were connected to Christ in a very real way. Connected by the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ. John 15, that allowed the Spirit of God to flow from Christ into our lives and bear fruit. That relationship cannot change. It's eternal. I want you to notice the verb in the Greek for bathed, chapter 13, verse 10. The verb bathed in John 13, 10 is in the perfect tense in the Greek. You know what the perfect tense is? It signifies something that took place in the past, but the effects of which continue into the present and beyond. At one point in the past, you gave your heart to Christ and you were washed of your sins. That cleansing continues till today. You don't have to be saved all over again. You just need to confess whatever sins you've committed to clear up any practical barrier between you and the Lord. Reconnect yourself to Him, although you're positionally connected forever. But practically, our fellowship can be broken if we're involved in sin. We need to confess that sin. And God cleanses us of that unrighteousness and allows the power of God, the blessings of God, to once again flow from Him into our lives. It's so beautiful that when Jesus talked about being bathed all over at salvation, he uses the perfect tense, which implies this action happened in the past, but it can, the effects continue. Again, we don't have to get saved every time we sin. Read, save, rewashed. However, again, as we close, our daily communion with Jesus depends on our keeping ourselves, as James put it, in chapter 1, verse 27 of his epistle, our practical communion and fellowship with the Lord depends on us keeping ourselves unspotted from the world, unpolluted by the world. You guys work in the world. I don't have to tell you what it's like out there, okay? You go there and you 
hear the dirty jokes and the language and you see things and 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 you, you come home feeling dirty. So you, you get in the word. You wash yourself. So you feel clean again, you know? And if you participated in the dirty jokes or whatever, you need to confess that. Let God cleanse you of that. He wants a holy vessel. He wants us to be pure as he is pure. He is light. There is no darkness in him. We are the light of the world, and he doesn't want darkness in us. Guys, let me just close by saying this. The Christian life consists of one bath, many foot washings. Let's close by looking at Psalm 89. Now, I want you to understand, the context is that God is talking to David, or uh, he's talking about David's son, uh, Solomon. And... um, but what he's doing here is he's talking about the covenant he made with David that through Solomon, Messiah would eventually come. This was a covenant that God made with David. It was an unconditional covenant. So David didn't have any part in it, really. Um, but it relates to our the covenant that God made with us through Christ. That we're going to blow it. And God will deal with us when we blow it. But he'll never break the covenant he made with us. That's everlasting. That's our connection to Christ. That will never be severed. Once we are saved, we have been washed in the blood of Christ for all eternity. Let's read Psalm 89, verse 30. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments... If they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, listen, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky, Selah. And that is exactly the covenant God made with us through Christ. God is saying, when I entered into this covenant with you, when you gave your heart to me, and I put my spirit within you, didn't I tell you I would never leave you nor forsake you? Didn't I tell you in my word, Ephesians 1, that I sealed you in Christ through the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption? And if you mess up, if you get involved in sin, I'll chasten you. I'll discipline you because I love you. But I'll never throw you out of the family. Because the covenant I made with you is an everlasting covenant based on my faithfulness, not based on yours. And that will never change. And so I I praise God for that, that in his great love and mercy, he says, look, once you've entered into a commitment with me through my son, you belong to me. You are mine. You can walk away from me. I'll never walk away from you. Isn't it true? We've talked about it. Some people walk a million miles away from Christ. They get saved and whatever reason, they walk a million miles away from Christ, years in sin. And at one point, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them. And they start to turn around thinking, how can I ever get back to God? I've walked away from him for 20 years. As soon as they turn around, he's right there. Because he says, when I made a commitment to you, I take that seriously. You can walk away from me. I'll never walk away from you. And all you have to do is turn around, confess your sin, I will forgive you, and we will start at the point we left off. Because that's the love of our God. And, and that's why our joy can be full. Because we understand that perfect love casts out what? Fear. His love is perfected toward us in Christ. That will never change. And so we'll continue next time, getting into chapter 2. Uh, I do want to look briefly at the last three verses again, but... We'll get into chapter 2, and John just keeps going, man. I tell you, it's incredible, uh, the things that he is bringing up. But, Father, we thank you for our time in your word tonight.
We praise you, Lord, for your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness. We are often not very faithful, us, we're not. But Lord, you are totally faithful. And when you make a promise to us, you never go back on it, you never break it. And so, Lord, give us grace that we would always walk in the light as you are in the light. Because we want to have fellowship with you. Because when we do, Lord, we get to know you more. But also, Lord, the fruit of the Spirit will grow in our lives. And that brings you glory and us great joy. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.